Hey, y'all. You know we're a nonprofit, right? That means we rely on donations from listeners to keep this podcast going. So if you have a couple of dollars to spare because every dollar counts, please consider giving at patreon.com slash femfreak. Also, fun fact, in addition to the perks that you'll get as a Patreon subscriber, your donations and contributions on Patreon are also tax deductible because we're a 501c3. So if you want to learn more, if you want to give, please head over to patreon.com slash femfreak. Roy keeps saying things like, I've seen things that like you can never imagine. And I'm just like, what are they, Roy? I would really like to know because you obviously are so much more interesting than like the character we've been saddled as the protagonist. Welcome to Feminist Frequency Radio. This is the show that asks you to be critical of the media you love. I'm Anita Sarkeesian. And I'm Kat Spada. And this season, our feminist media criticism is brought to you by the Tyrell Corporation. Because this is the season of cyberpunk. Tyrell, meeting all your synthetic humanoid needs. Mr. Deckard, Dr. Eldon Tyrell. The new millennium. This is amazing. We'll bring... A new experience. How do you fit all that in your head anyway? I had to dump a chunk of long-term memory. This is gonna be fun, Terry. Who is this? Take this thing out of the case and stick it up your nose. Mozart's Ghost, the hottest band on the internet! This week, we are discussing Blade Runner, Ridley Scott's 1982 film adaptation of Philip K. Dick's 1968 novel, Do Androids Dream of Electric Sheep? Set in the dystopian Los Angeles of 2019, Harrison Ford plays a cop hunting down bioengineered androids known as replicants who have returned to Earth from the space colonies where they were sent to work as slave labor. A Blade Runner's job is to hunt down replicants manufactured humans you can't tell from the real thing. There was just one outfit making replicants that superhuman. The Terrell Corporation. Joining us to discuss this film is The Washington Post's award-winning television critic, previously a writer for The Hollywood Reporter, Slate, MTV News, and The Village Voice. She is the co-host of the All About Almodovar and All About Campion podcasts, and her essay, Notes from the Underground, accompanies Parasite's inclusion in the Criterion Collection. Welcome to the show, Ingu King. Hi, that was a really thorough bio. <laughs> <laughs> Read some interviews, and then actually I was really enjoying uh, listening to the, it's like one podcast that sort of alternates between Almodovar and Campion episodes, or is it two distinct shows? We had two seasons. They were like first Campion, then Almodovar, or I kind of listened to them out of order, I think. Oh, interesting. First Almodovar and then uh, Campion. Almodovar because my co-host, Daniel Schroeder, uh, is a gay man who had never watched an Almodovar movie, and it really upset me. And we were both (laughs) trapped in our homes during COVID. So we just watched movies together, like talking on the phone the whole time. Uh, Very like... Flashback to 1982, actually. <laughs> <laughs> That's yeah. right. And Before then, the second yeah. screen experience. Oh, yes. Um, I guess it's the second audio experience. I don't know. <laughs> uh, but that's how that came about. And it was actually really interesting sort of like thinking through these directors' works from someone who had not really watched them before. 
Um, and, you know, I think the, not to like already start bootlicking Tyrell style, but I think this <laughs> idea of like thinking critically through things that you love is really important. And so that was like a really great way to do that with those two particular podcasts, um, which are about filmmakers I love, but also there's a lot to critique there. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. What a, that's great. I'm always looking for a new podcast to listen to. Like I bounce off of them so hard and I'm so excited about all the dope people that Kat's brought on to this season. Cause now I'm like, I got to go listen to all of your podcasts. <laughs> like those sound fucking amazing. So yeah. Thanks so much for joining us. Really happy to be here. Um, so what is your relationship to Blade Runner? Have you seen it before? Do you have feelings about it before this particular episode of watching it, rewatching it? I have an incredibly nerdier than the usual level of nerd relationship to Blade Runner. Bring it. Which is that I watched <laughs> yes. it for the first time as part of a graduate seminar. Um, I forget what the class was. I think it was sort of like the political political theories on necropolises or something along those lines. Cool. Um, <laughs> but basically, yeah, we read it in conjunction with a, a professor of Asian American uh, studies, sort of like analysis of this movie as a multicultural dystopia. And I am a person who grew up in Los Angeles. And therefore, the sort of like way that this movie depicts sort of this like a vision of like futuristic white flight uh, mm. combined with like what if the Asians took over and then like everything would be so ugly and gross. Like mm. that really hit hard for me. And so it's always been really impossible for me to extricate that sort of like first experience, even while being able to really admire the of course like the production design and like us play with uh neo-noir and all of these like really beautiful references to 1940s films visually and, but it's always to me sort of just like very specific document of anxieties from the 1980s mm. this idea of like ooh, the hardened inner city and the rise of asia um and so yeah i also feel like it's not a masterpiece and we can get into this when i stop talking but it's a really uneven film and i understand why people are really into it but at the same time um i hope that people can be a little bit more honest about like some just like technical stuff it has like not going for it pacing um <laughs> characters yeah, that like character dynamics that make no sense um so yeah yeah cat uh, what's your relationship with blade runner i feel like um i'm usually pretty open to stuff even things where i'm like oh no cultural osmosis maybe has set this up for me and i haven't seen it but like blade runner is a movie i have tried to watch many times and i had never finished it before wow um, I have always found it interminably boring and, <laughs> um, and like my mom used to work in the Bradbury building. So mm. I remember when I was like a teenager, like trying to watch this movie. Cause I was like, yeah, like I've gone to my mom's office and like ridden in the cool elevator with the elevator operator and da, 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 da. And, um, 
so I've always tried to watch it as like this aesthetic movie and it is really aesthetically pleasing, like sensual in a way that I want to watch it, but I really have never, just never have been sucked in. So I watched it this time and like I made a little note in our show outline um, that even trying to write what the plot of this movie is, I was like, well, if I were writing it the way I just read it, it's like about a bad guy who is not the hero. But I don't know if that's objectively true. Like, what is the story of this movie? So I found it really, really othering in a way that like that's that's probably all of our experience of watching a lot of like typical Hollywood movies. But much of the time, I feel like I can put that aside and watch the movie and even enjoy a movie. But this just felt like so relentlessly not for you if you are a woman, not for you if you are an Asian person, not for you. Like really watching it, I was like, man, I guess I could have this on mute in uh, during a party and find the visuals compelling. Um but yeah, this is the first time. And actually, I did have to pause about halfway through and take a break and still finish <laughs> watching it. And like, you know, I don't know. Yeah. My Sometimes freak out happens, is going to yeah. be a three-hour documentary. So like, clearly, I have the stamina for long movies. And this, I don't know. Is this even a long movie? I just really, I just couldn't. Yeah. But Anita, you're like, I'm kind of surprised that we're on the sides we're on with this movie, maybe. Yeah, a little bit, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So, um, I, okay, before I talk about my relationship to it um what so i specifically there's seven versions of this movie right? <laughs> uh, and i specifically did not like say which one we should watch because i was really curious what we were all gonna land on and depending on whether you've seen it or not before so like what version did or do you even know what versions you all watched I know I watched the final cut which is yeah which is the the standard one that people end up watching yeah yeah yeah, I did too, because it was the one on okay. HBO Max. Yeah. Okay, cool. So I um I I like Blade Runner, like despite all of the things. Um, you know, in we'll link in the show notes that we made an episode of The Freak Show, which was an, a show that Feminist Frequency used to make about Blade Runner and how racist and fucked up this movie actually is, uh right before the sequel came out. Um, so you know. Be critical of the media you love. Um, I decided to watch the theatrical release, which was not received well. Um, and I learned why. <laughs> but I just because I had already seen the 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 director's cut and the one that, like, you know, generally are the ones that people now consider like the definitive version of this movie. Um, because I just kind of wanted to see what the differences were and what it what it um what it went. So we can w- what that meant. And so we can get into that, but um I like got a little high and watched this movie again and just got so sucked into it in a way that I like, I remember watching it before and like really appreciating the aesthetic and like the lighting and the practical effects and like thinking it looked really cool and like moody and all of that. Um, but I, but I remember, I think I was like a little bit bored and mm-hmm. I think getting high was this really sweet spot where I'm like, oh, I can just like lean back and kind of take it in, in a way that, uh, re- like really worked for me, except 
One of the differences, the theatrical version has these horrific voiceovers right. that Harrison Ford does. And it was in, it was imposed on the film because there was some testing that didn't go well. And so like just exposition dump. And he delivered those lines so badly. And he denies this, but people think that he, he butchered them on purpose to make sure that they didn't get used. Uh-huh. And so I swear to God, you're like, you're like zoning out and you're into it. And like, you know, you're looking at the lights and the lighting and the shadows and all that shit. And then all of a sudden it's like, and then I walked into the place and <laughs> I felt a feeling. And you're just like, what the fuck? Like you just it was so dramatic and so bad. Like so, so bad. Um, but yeah, anyways, okay. So that's my my um I I, I just I like the aesthetic. I think that it it's really interesting. I don't disagree with anything. Ingu, that you said when you started, I think that this film is extremely problematic. And like, I I find a lot of joy in like being able to unpack that and talk about it. Um, but I do like, it just hits a spot for me. It really reminded me a lot of The Hunger, which is, you know, like mm-hmm. a very similar time period, you know, also sort of takes place in this kind of urban dystopian moment uh, where Beth is like very cheap. And also mm. everything's super stylized. And yeah, if I was high and I watched The Hunger, you know, for like a second time and I wasn't thinking too critically about it, it would be an amazing experience. <laughs> but you guys made me think about this movie. And so, you know. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I think there's a big question here of, you know, and Kat, you were like, I don't know how to describe the movie. Like, yeah, Deckard is an anti-hero. He's kind of a piece of shit guy, you know. Um, and the film, I think, talking about replicants and who is human and what is humanity and what does that mean? And is it okay that these these replicants are slaves and sex workers and exploited in various ways? And like one of the big problems of this movie is like it's set in this environment that is supposed to be this like hodgepodge of culture. It's all of these white people. And the question of who is human and what is humanity is really rooted in like white male, like cis Mm -hmm. men, right? Like, and that I think is the core structure, the core narrative, like theme of this movie is already flawed in that, in that fact. I think so much of the movie wants to be about these sort of like high flying philosophical, like really vague ideas of like who is human. But I like, to me, it really seems obvious that like most important question in Blade Runner is not who is human. It is like, how should we treat others? Like with a mm. capital O. Right. And for me, it feels so obvious that uh, one of the metaphorical uses of the replicants is that they're immigrants. They're like a source of like labor that we think that humans should not have to do or that we think is not safe enough for humans to do. And they also have to be contained in their influence and in their propagation so that like larger mainstream society can go on and sort of like be the thing that it wants to be. And so to, on the one hand, uh, be a story about immigrants and then also to kind of like villainize and exotify like what in this universe would be immigrants is just very short-sighted and obviously like very indicative of like who Ridley Scott thinks he's making this movie for. 
and yet at the same time is such a very common Hollywood trope to sort of say, what of this awful thing that routinely happens to people of color or used to mm. happen to them actually happened to a white person? That would be horrible. And that's sort of like the tradition in which Blade Runner is for me. Yeah, absolutely. I so just another point about the the voiceovers, which you uh, luckily didn't have to deal with, is so, there is a little bit of race like exposition that happens in the voiceovers mm. that is also really cringy. But so for you know, we see James Edward almost um, like near the beginning, and I was like, is he supposed to be Asian? What's happening here? Like I'm so confused about this whole character and what he looks like and who he's supposed to be. And right away they have a voiceover talking about like language and how there's like English and Japanese and Spanish and like to like quickly, very quickly gloss over the fact that like, despite that, that it's all just set dressing. Right. But they mm -hmm. like try to write it off with this text. And then as a part of the like, you know, othering and, and who's worthy, there is another, another voiceover where he, talks about um if i'm i know he says the n-word and it's disturbing um um harrison ford's character deckard says it and i think it's in relation to like how the replicants are treated mm. uh and so like that's all shoved into these voiceovers to be like no we understand what we're doing and and the rest of us are like oh this is not good at all <laughs> like no 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 yeah okay, i didn't know so about the n-word use in the voiceover like the full word, it's just, it's very jarring. And yeah. you're like, okay, buddy. Do you think that was just an improv? That was part of him trying to get them not to use it? <laughs> <laughs> um, I did read uh, that Deckard was supposed to wear a hat as an homage to like the 1940s noir aesthetic, but he had just made Indiana Jones. So Harrison <laughs> Ford was like, I'm not wearing a hat in this movie. Um <laughs> I have to admit that I missed, um, probably in my, like, interrupted watching, I missed uh, the big the big theme, maybe the big question of the movie, which is, like, is Deckard a replicant himself? Uh, completely passed me by until looking it up afterwards. Um, so, like, that maybe would have given me a little bit more depth of like what this story is instead like I, and I, I think this is just a little bit different uh audience expectation today versus um 40 years ago but the notion of like just because this guy is the central character nothing you still have to convince me that he's um, the protagonist like I don't think he's the driver of this story I just think he's like a bad guy doing bad things and call me when Rutger Hauer's back on screen. <laughs> like, um, so I don't know. Like, I wonder that, if that was just my reading or it's, if it was. That part of it is very minor, to be honest. So, mm. um, like, there is a line when Rachel, who is the the replicant he assaults, yeah. except it's supposed to be sexy uh, yeah, for yuck. some reason. Because they put that, like, jazz music over it when he's, like, <laughs> literally pushing her and being making, like, forcing her yeah. to, like, say that he she wants him. It's. Disgusting. Highly disturbing. Yeah. yeah. Um, but she she says, have you ever thought, have you ever done the test on yourself? Um, to be like, and so that's insinuated there. And then 
in the director's cut, like, I believe if I remember correctly, it ends with them just kind of like in the elevator, sort of like graduate style, where it's just like, it like cuts off there. And so I think there's a, a subtle, supposed to be some kind of subtle, like, hint towards maybe he's also a replicant in the in the theatrical release they like shoved in a happy ending and they are literally like driving along the coast somewhere together in a car just like sailing off into the sunset to be lovers together and it's so weird like it doesn't make it doesn't feel cohesive at all to the like tone of this movie yeah i think the arc that deckard has is actually very familiar to a kind of noir genre pattern and that basically you start with this detective and this detective is essentially self-interested right but he sort of like has these maybe like minor feelings toward wanting to do something good he comes across a case he does the case and then by the end of the case, he realizes that he was actually just a pawn for evil and that whatever mission he thought he was going to accomplish or redemptive arc he thought he was going to have, it turned out um, like actually was the opposite. And um, all of it was for nothing. And it was like so easy to dupe because these like larger institutions are so much bigger and so much more powerful and so much more opaque than he had ever imagined. Like, I think that that whole arc for me, it tracks in so far as like, it's an established pattern. Mm-hmm. I think what didn't really work for me as this whole thing was unfurling is that you're at least like until the end-ish supposed to be on board as Deckard goes and sort of basically like <laughs> kills these like very innocent robots who Mm -hmm. aren't really like doing anything like okay they killed like the people that they like whose like spaceship they took hostage or whatever right but you know like their desire their primary motivation which is to continue living is a very sympathetic uh, motivation and so for me the movie does not seem to really understand how sympathetic the replicants are vis-a-vis deckard and so even though, for example, after he um, kills the, like, uh, showgirl sex bot or whatever, yeah. like, even after he kills her and then he, like, is shaking and needs a drink, I'm kind of like, oh, all cops are bastards. Like, <laughs> I don't know, like, what, I like, the idea that, like, the movie wants me to sympathize with him because he feels bad about having killed someone, like, I'm not with you. Even just on, like, an emotional investment level, I'm not really able to, like, get onto the movie's wavelength that it's supposed to get for me. He saves Decker from falling. Like, he hunts yeah. him down in the house, in the the Bradbury building, um, which you cannot go into anymore in L.A., which is a huge bummer. It's owned by um, Neue House, and so now I'm trying to get into a Neue House event just so <laughs> I can see that fucking building because it's incredible. But... um yeah, he he like he ends up saving Deckard and then there's a really bad voiceover that's like I don't know why he saved me. <laughs> but he did. <laughs> and then he just like turns off. Like, yes, and then nah, like the not, not dove flies Deckard, into Howard. the air and then you're like, "Oh, maybe like the replicant did have a soul." Yeah. Um, yeah, no, you're like right. That. Um you know, he keeps Roy keeps saying things like, "I've seen things that like you can never imagine." And I'm just like, "What are they, Roy?" Um, 
I would really like to know because you obviously are so much more interesting than like the character we've been saddled as the protagonist. And yeah, I, again, I just don't think that like B movie uh, truly has like a. I just don't think that like that card is like interesting enough as like a vehicle for us to get so much more time with him versus the other characters. I don't really think Harrison Ford is ever interesting enough ever. So mm. you know. mm. <laughs> he says, well, guys, you know, get off my plane very well. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But you know, like that, this is an interesting point of like, I hear you. Um, and you know, I, I, th I think I'm like caught up in the race and gender of who the replicants are and who gets time and who doesn't and what that looks like. Um, but, you know, there's a little bit of we as the audience are being asked to understand the sort of plight of these replicants through, you know, narrative, whatever. And I think there's a question of like, is it enough? And what I'm hearing from you is that like, we're not getting enough from the perspective of the replicants and understanding like who they are and their struggles. Um, and I think there's, for me, there's a question of like, but then what turns into too much exposition or should the movie just be from their perspective? Well, that's, right? the, that's the main, like I've never read Philip K. Dick. So I am, I, I could be completely talking out of my ass, but I'm way more interested in the question, do androids dream of electric sheep than I am in watching the movie Blade Runner about the Blade Runner. Like yeah. that I think is where, that's like the major flaw <laughs> of the movie and not to say that like it's all in the title, but um, you know, I actually was thinking of the, again, I haven't read the original book, but the movie um, Never, Let, Le Never Let Me Go or Never Let You Go with Andrew Garfield and... Um, yeah. And there's a Karen lot of Knightley. stories, Kara Knightley, Carrie Mulligan. There's a lot of stories that do this, like the question of, you know, we're all the whole cyberpunk season are, um, are androids human? Can they have sentience? Can they have souls, et cetera? But also like the way that in this movie, they're painted as children in a way, like there is something about the fact that they only get to live for a few years and so how exploited they are is being held at the same time as like how inexperienced they are and how little they maybe know of the world. Daryl Hannah is probably the best example of any of the characters who is just trying to get by, I guess. Um, and like, yeah, that was just way yeah, more compelling really to me. Yeah, she's really like a teenage runaway. yeah. I mean, maybe because that's the kind of eyeliner I wore when I was a teenager. <laughs> but also she has this like, you know, it, it, it 100% the the teenager runaway and like very childish, like very um, n not like emotionally developed. And when she meets the um, the genetic designer, yeah, um, you know, there's this. Like you, I, I quickly was like, oh, is, did she know that that was his house and she's manipulating him so they can take over the house and get support from him? Like, so, so it felt like before it was like teenage, it was teenage runaway. And then I was like, oh, this is a part of their plan to live, right? Mm. Like to find all of the people that can help them actually like stay alive. Yeah, I But they don't but they don't explain that. Like you're you're just like, "Oh, was this a happy coincidence or did they actually like uh 
did, was this intentional? Right, because he definitely knew what he was doing. Yeah. Um, I think the other reason why, plot-wise, I really just started checking out mentally towards the end is that um, both, like, Tyrell and the genetic maker, the toy master, whatever, uh, they're both these, like, scientists who know exactly what they have made, and yet they are killed by them and mm. are just so, like, fucking dumb. I don't know if you can see fucking. Um, yeah. And so, like, I just, like, sat there being like, why are these, like, uber villains so stupid? And for me, like, the much more interesting <laughs> concept here is about sort of, like, this, like, idea that all of these, um, like, almost, like, ungovernable products that are out there that pose a threat to human life, supposedly, are corporate made. And it reminded mm -hmm. me of that story that came out of Google like a month ago about like the whistleblower who was like, Google has made an AI and like now it's getting way too smart and like everyone needs to know about this. And I think like so much of like the really like beautiful facade in that is that like there's no real government outside of like a police state anymore and so it's really the corporations who are running this world and why this world is so terrible and yet if these like like really powerful really smart puppet masters if all they're doing is like getting killed in like the dumbest ways by their own creations it's just not satisfying <laughs> oh no my robot can choke me with her thighs <laughs> <laughs> Um, I mean, certainly the the world building is undeniable. Like, I'm not going to pretend that I I didn't find it like rich and interesting, even if I took offense to a lot of the way the the world was built. But what is interesting there is like I think a lot of the movies in this ilk go into like there is the very high level story that's happening or something that's happening, you know, at um, within the corporations, the government. Um, and then there's like, how does it affect the actual individual? We looked at Tron, which came out later the same year. And this was like developers at the company, but there's maybe the, what is the connection to the average video game player, right? So in this world, there is something that I, I wanted to see more of. And I do think, um, I watched a little bit of the sequel and I could tell I was going to actually enjoy it. So I'm oh. going to. Oh, I, it's so bad. Oh, it's I, awful. I really, <laughs> I really oh. loved Dune. So I was like, I think I'm going to dig this. But I stopped watching. You know what I'll say about the, the I, I'm, I have no doubt that we did a podcast episode on it. So y'all can reference that. Um, but I will say that um, it like aesthetically was stripped of everything that made Blade Runner like actually visually mm. stimulating in the production design. It's very like, like Dune, like it's sleek, it's slick. It feels like an Apple fucking keynote. <laughs> it's just, it's not gritty. And like, like, it's just, it's, I, I think that that was a really disappointing component of an otherwise fucking terrible movie in so many ways. Um, and what rewatching the original Blade Runner, I was like, so many of us love this movie because of the production design and right. the lighting. You don't know? like a movie well, that's like three hours of orange and yellow light. <laughs> <laughs> um, but well, maybe I'm maybe I'm wrong then in hoping that the sequel would would bring forth uh, more of the like 
how does how do replicants or like replicant technology um, find their way into the average person's life? So we see a little bit of that when we go to like the market or he's looking for the synthetic snake skin, like that piece of it where I was like, oh, I'm curious about this. Like, is this more than just potentially for escaped replicants? Or is this something that is like really integrated into the fabric of of life in this 2019? Um, which, again, I just didn't... The story, just the central story, wasn't interesting enough to me. And so I was like, oh, there's so much in this world that I could be intrigued by. Um but yeah, whether or not this guy feels bad for taking orders and then takes it out on a clearly traumatized Rachel, <laughs> um, then who cares? Like, I don't, I don't want to see it. I don't want to see that. I mean, who likes watching cops ever? You know, you're like you're just like I don't need to. Americans. I don't need to watch a cop. I know. One. <laughs> uh, when- one thing that I um, noticed in this viewing that I never noticed before, which is related to the sort of like um, the the cultural uh, like picking. I, I can't mm. think of the right word right now. But like they're like we yeah like we go to the Japanese noodle bar and then there's like the Japanese guy who makes the eyeballs. Which I gotta say, that scene was fucking hilarious where the other replicant just like was placing eyeballs on him randomly. <laughs> I was like, that is such a weird power flex. Um, but what I never noticed before was that there is an Egyptian man. So they go to see Hassan and he, they're playing Arabic music for the only time in the whole fucking movie. Yep. The music is Arabic and you know you're gonna go to see the Arabic guy. Um, and that area of town looks like a Medina that you would see mm-hmm. in Arab, like Mor- Morocco's the, for example, is the only place I've seen a Medina, but like they're in a lot of Arab towns. They have these like really intricate, um, shopping areas. And then that's like gone, right? Like, it's just like, cool. We have that, like, look at how multicultural Los Angeles of 2019 is and all of these different areas. And it just felt very like shoved in, right? Like with the music and the the name and and all of it and like it's such a passing fleeting moment that barely has any dialogue right it's like who do you know who snakeskin this is is this yours you know whatever oh yeah. i mean if you want to dive into that further it, like he is sort of supposed to be i think like a modern day snake charmer he's like an egyptian guy he has like a artificial snake but then it even turns out that, like, he's a peddler of, like, really cheap uh, fake snakes. Mm. And, like, the guy who makes a really artisan fake snakes is, like, a white guy who's, like, much richer because white people are smarter than people of color. Um, I could truly, yeah, like, yeah. rant about all of the little microaggressions in this film for an hour, but I will spare you guys. Um, I No, I mean, I think that's a huge part of, like... Uh, you know, we pe- like you like you said at the beginning, like people are so caught up in the the aesthetic and the history and the lore and the fandom and just like, God, how can you not love Blade Runner if you like are actually a nerd? Like what's wrong with you or if you're like like films? And I think that it's really important to be pointing out all of these uh, like very large problems with the movie. I mean, I think the thing that makes it sort of like hard with this movie is that the same thing that I think. I think like it's almost sort of like the racism makes it ex- exciting, right? 
like mm-hmm. it gives you it's not just that like all of these different multicultural details are grotesque it's that they're sort of like exciting in the same way that like the naked girl who has like all of the dots on her like the sparkle dots or whatever all of right. her, her body is like exciting um this is like very well and you you know i was like who the fuck puts on a like see-through raincoat to <laughs> escape and i was like this is just some sexist bullshit so that we could watch the blood and watch her die grotesquely as she's like you know in her body as she's like running through the streets and being murdered yeah but it just like felt very much a kind of post to white flight vision of a quote-unquote inner city where like the city is you go the city is like the place that you go for like excitement with this like layer of seediness to it and it's sort of like where you go to experience different cultures but that place is distinctly not quote-unquote america and distinctly not like quote-unquote home and so it really continually reinforces like who the movie is supposed to be for because it's supposed because you're supposed to like identify a very specific way with like the white characters versus who is the white characters but specifically Deckard who is either always like grossed out or sort of like minorly inconvenienced at like the mm-hmm. most benign level um, yeah, because you know his noodle his noodle dealer doesn't know the difference between two and four. His noodle dealer, who uh, is like even kind of a slime ball because he speaks perfectly good English and yet pretends not to because he doesn't want to take uh, that guy's that card's order correctly. Like it's just like a very like here is this like trickster Asian figure, which is just like I think a, kind of like an older stereotype of like Asians in this country. But again, yeah. just like really dealing with like a lot of these like really explosive, really hostile tropes in like a way that like I think like the movie just like either doesn't fundamentally understand or just like doesn't have full control over. Or if we want to be sort of like more quote unquote sympathetic, it's just like what appealed to people, what appealed to white people in the early 1980s. And I think that one of the images that is really lasting for me, like that I, if you asked me to describe a scene from Blade Runner before I'd ever seen it, like over the years, I'm picturing the sort of gritty cityscape with that holographic geisha advertisement. Like that, I think, is always what I've remembered about like, this is Los Angeles in like a dystopian future. So watching it again, I'm, I was kind of like, it's not even there's not even like a through line of what they're saying about what the culture is in this place. It's a little bit of this and it's a little bit of that. So um, there's just there like I think a lot of sci-fi does they or or like dystopian futuristic media will do the like the haves and the have nots and we're going to see it be very uh, gritty and hard scrabble for um, the majority of people. And then we're going to see that clean, futuristic, sleek, white silver for the like people at the top. Here, it's interesting that everyone is in some ex- to some extent like in the muck with everyone else. But 
it just didn't feel like a very purposefully designed muck. <laughs> like it was just like, well, this stereotype works for this scene and this graphic or this image works for what we think is going to look cool. Um, yeah, that said, like, that, it looks cool. It's just fucked up. <laughs> I think that chaos is sort of, like, there for a reason. Mm-hmm. It's just sort of, like, the city that everyone who could get away has already gotten away from. Because they go live, like, high above the Earth, or they go live in, like, a space colony or whatever. Elysium? Um, I did have to laugh at the idea of a housing shortage in Los Angeles in 2019. Um, totally not interesting, but uh, Coca-Cola is the official futuristic uh, soda of Blade Runner, while Pepsi is the official (laughs) futuristic (laughs) soda of Total Recall, which is another episode we watch. It's just interesting to watch all of these back to back and see what product placement and like rivalries and like what they have to f- mask in some way to be like, this has lasted for centuries or whatever <laughs> as the thing. Um, I would be remiss before we wrap up if we didn't at least point out some of the tech stuff that's in this. Mm. So one is the speed hairdryer, which I feel like is, is literally just like a salon hairdryer that makes your hair look perfect, not just dries it. Um, but the real, the real one here is the photo scan and enhance Right. Yeah. We spent so much time on that. And I would yeah. love to call out my friend, Nicole, he who made a video game making fun of this, where you literally yell enhance at uh, the game to enhance uh, things on the screen to see if it works or not. And it's fucking hilarious. And I will link it in the, the show notes. But like, this is such an epic example of like, just zoom in the the little tiny thing in the background and you'll be able to figure it out. And they do it for so, I don't know if I was just high, but I'm like, this lasted a really long time. Yeah. Cause he's like (laughs) Like calling pixel coordinates out to the machine and it really does go on for a, a, a long time although yeah and i was like you could have got to the mirror a lot faster than that. <laughs> like i don't really know what your deal was but okay i feel like the only other scene that goes on for that long a period is the scene where uh roy kills uh tyrell and like he just like pushes his thumbs into tyrell's eyes and i was just like this is like minute four of this scene. What are we doing here? But then I was really shocked that like so much of this eye violence, I guess like has like precedent because I feel mm. like it's so many contemporary movies, especially horror movies now, just like continuously like things into the eye socket and I'm so sick of seeing it. And then it was kind of startling to see it like in this 40 year old movie. Yeah, I'm always, I'm very fascinated by like, the beginnings of tropes, mm. right? Like we go back and watch things and you're like, oh man, that's so exhausting. And you're like, but this was the first time it was ever done. I'm not saying that's the case for this, but like it's it can be a little bit hard to as like contemporary viewers to go back and be like, wow, that was like a, a first time or a big deal or whatever it might've been um, when it's just been used over and over and over again. But yes, <laughs> I, eyeball gouging is, you know, something I could do without. Well, and just on that same scene, like, the kiss that he gives him right before gouging his eyes to death, like, 
Do you think that was supposed to just be shocking? Like that was just supposed to be like, look at this replicant. He's he's taking all sorts of extreme pleasure in killing his maker. Like, or I don't know. I just didn't know how I was supposed to interpret that. I think it's, oh, I don't, well, I, I feel like it's a part of the weird, sinister, evil trope thing. Like, yeah. I, I don't know if it, I don't read it as anything more than like, this guy is like wild and a little bit queer coded mm-hmm. and like, you know, zany and therefore he's evil um, right. is kind of how I saw it. Hmm. But, yeah, I don't know yeah. how to interpret it either. There is definitely this like sort of hypersexualization of the replicants, but you never get the sense that that hypersexualization is coming from themselves because obviously uh, they're what they're meant to do is sort of like be at the service of humans. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. I guess my final question to you guys is if we have all of these like female sex spots, would you be into Roy as a male sex spot for straight women? Representationally or just like, are we horny enough for Roy? Horny. <laughs> are you horny for Roy is my question. That's, that's a cat mm. question. <laughs> I know. I know. I'm always horny for You're- everyone. It's, <laughs> it's a problem. Um, yeah, sure. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> He's not my type, but you know, uh, He's I, not. He's he's not. He's not like broken nosed <laughs> enough for cats. I know. I like. I like a um. Look, I like a very broad <laughs> spectrum of of movie star. But I. I mean, I do. I felt like he was an interesting character. So I was like, okay, I'll spend more time with 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 Roy. Roy Batty. All right, y'all. Uh, we will be right back with some freakouts. If you are enjoying our show, please consider supporting it on Patreon. Your monthly or annual tax-deductible gift helps us keep the show running and on the air. By becoming a patron, you're supporting independent feminist media and a nonprofit that's working to end abuse in the games industry. Plus, patrons get a special bonus alongside each episode of the podcast. Of course, we know that not everyone has the means to financially support the show, so... Just taking a moment to give us a star rating and review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen to this show can help new listeners find us. We appreciate your support in whatever way you can provide it. Now, back to the show. Now, it's time to talk about what's been thrilling us, moving us, upsetting us, or infuriating us this past week. Ingu, what are you watching? What are you, what's making you feel all the freakouts? <laughs> I have two suggestions. Uh, One will be very Ellie specific and then one will be like the opposite. But since we're already in LA in the past, um, I'm going to shout out a show called Angeline, uh, Mm. which is sort of about like this uh, very famous blonde woman in my childhood who would have billboards of herself, like usually with like very big blonde hair, big boobs. Sometimes she has like her pink car with her usually sunglasses so you can't really see her eyes her name on the billboards angeline and then basically no other information you had no idea what she was selling it's a little bit like this geisha in blade runner um you're just like what is this for and nobody ever really knew (laughs) i think a lot of like the way people sort of talk about her now is sort of like Kim Kardashian before Kim Kardashian mm. and that she's like famous for being famous. Um, anyway, 
On Peacock, yes, that's a real thing. There is a five-part drama series sort of like reimagining what and who Angeline is. And it's actually a really good show. Um, and so that would be one show I am recommending. The other one is called Pea Valley, which is on a network called Stars, which is also a real network. <laughs> and basically it is about um, a strip club that is black owned, like black dominated in Mississippi. And season two is happening right now. It's just like an unbelievably good show, like amazing spectacle, which you probably love because you love Blade Runner. And yet yeah. at the same time, really great characters. And um, basically with regard to all of these social issues, the exact opposite of what we got from Blade Runner. And so I really love this show. Um, and I think it really should find an audience, a larger audience. The Stars Conundrum. Vita also I'm was Vita a show love. that didn't get nearly enough attention. Um, and yeah, I have to keep watching Angeline. Definitely, I mean, I grew up with Angeline, you know? She was always there, and then every once in a while you'd get a real sighting of her in the car. Amazing. I've never had an Angeline sighting, so I feel very sad. Oh, and now I, I don't know. live in L.A. anymore. Anita. What are you reading, watching, etc.? Uh, I want to shout out a novella, which is great for our listeners who don't like to read a lot because <laughs> it's short. Um, it's called The Empress of Salt and Fortune by um, Nevoy. And I don't even know how to describe it, so I'm just going to read the blurb. Um with the heart of an Atwood tale and the visuals of a classic Asian period drama, The Empress of Salt and Fortune is a tightly and lushly written narrative about empire, storytelling, and the anger of women. A young royal from the far north is sent south for a political marriage, alone and sometimes reviled. She has only her servants on her side. This evocative debut chronicles her rise to power through the eyes of her handmaiden, at once feminist high fantasy and a thrilling indictment of monarchy. I... Like, yes, but also, like, it's different than this. You, like, this, I don't, mm. like, I, someone was like, what are you reading? I was like, I have no idea how to explain it. The story is told through the lens of the handmaiden as, like, they're much older and living alone in solitary. And, like, there are these people who come and, like, stay with her. And she's recounting the story to these people. And, like, that creates a different lens and framing on the way the story is told, right? Because it's not just, like, in real time. It's, like, mm. through the lens of a lens. There's also, like, all this beautiful little whimsical stuff in this that is just super my jam, where the person that comes to stay with the handmaiden is um, with the, not the clergy, but something that feels related to clergy. And they travel with a bird, and the bird remembers everything the bird has mm. like so so while the clergy member might not remember the whole story the bird will and it was a big deal that this uh handmaiden shares this story right because then it becomes part of the official canon the official like knowledge base right and then the bird's babies then take like they pass the memory down and it's such that piece of it is such a little part of the story but i like i love that kind of whimsical fantasy interesting component of it. So yeah, it was like, I don't know, maybe an hour read. I'm kind of a slow reader, um, but it was really, um, it was really lovely. And I think there might be more because it's 
Unlike the Goodreads profile, it says the Singing Hills cycle number one, but I haven't read any more and I don't know if there are more. But anyways, that's my freak out. Cool. Kat, what are you freaking out about? Well, it felt only appropriate uh, during the Slide Runner episode to shout out the video essay Los Angeles Plays Itself. I guess that's probably a video essay is how it's described. It's from 2003 by Tom Anderson. Um, I watched it on Mubi when I had a free month of Mubi, but you can also rent it or get it from your local library. Um, It's a beautiful collage of... Um, scenery from films paired with narration. And uh, as as a native Angelino, watching it and seeing the places that I know, but also the places that I know even better because I've seen them on screen is a really satisfying experience. I would not imagine, I mean, it would be impossible for it to be very comprehensive, but even at three hours, um, it I feel like I could have watched three days worth of it because there are so many communities that it could go into, so many cultures that, you know, are exist or have existed in Los Angeles, but maybe have never been shown on screen. So it's kind of a, you know, it's a, a great blend of everything from uh, Boys in the Hood to L.A. Story to early days when Los Angeles was uh, filling in for other cities, um, and it was less likely for film productions to actually go to those places. Um, and it's also a really great sort of uh, um, history. What's the word I'm looking for? Like a, film uh, a time cap. Yeah, a film history and and a time capsule of Los Angeles. Like you get to see Bunker Hill before it is the Bunker Hill that it is today. Um, and obviously, uh, Blade Runner features in this uh, essay because you see the Bradbury building and other like architectural icons of the city that are used in scenes in this movie. Um, yeah, and I recommend it and I would love to watch one about New York and I'd love to watch one about like, you name it. Yeah. Two cities I, in America. That's what... <laughs> What's that? There are two cities in America. It's fine. That's it. I this has been on my watch list forever Carolyn told me to watch it and I am like so thankful for this reminder because I I you know I have such an affinity for LA and like recognizing LA in movies and I know that's kind of stupid but it you know it's whatever um okay I can I just add, add something really stupid to this that only people from LA will appreciate um so the block is this like shopping complex downtown uh, it's where the Alamo, the LA Alamo Draft House is. It has the fucking worst parking lot. It's terrible. And not only is the parking lot itself terrible, to get into it, you have to drive around in this like spiral circle. And no matter how many times I do that drive, it never feels like it's going to end. Like it goes on at least like 30 seconds longer than you think it should every time, even when you know it's coming. Okay. So like, and like I've been like sometimes it's full and you like there's nowhere to go and there's like it's just it's a nightmare. This parking lot sucks. Um okay, whatever. Parking in LA, wow. <laughs> Boo hoo <laughs> us, right? The reason I bring this up is because I've been watching The Old Man, which is the um spy show with Jeff Bridges. And there <laughs> there's literally a shot of this fucking parking lot and I nearly <laughs> fell off my couch because it's 
it's also beautiful. Like it's, I mean, that show has beautiful cinematography. And so like, there's this round part that says like flower and eighth street really big. Like it's very obvious that it's this parking lot and it's just like perfectly framed and they like drive around it and then they pull up. And I just like, couldn't remove the fact that I knew exactly this location and had such strong feelings (laughs) about this location from the fact that it was just like a cool shot that somebody scouted and like, you know, it was to like, do a thing and then leave it had nothing to do with this shopping complex. But it's these weird moments, right? Like, um, even like in Blade Runner and, and, and every fucking car commercial that takes place in a city, the LA tunnels, right? Like if you've never, if you've never seen them the first time you see them, you'll recognize them because they've been in so many movies. Like there's just so many iconic pieces around in the city that because LA is where Hollywood is. I think what would be interesting, you're talking about like a New York version, but like, Toronto and Vancouver, right? Yeah. Like so much of the industry has been moved to Canada and like they try to hide that it's Canada <laughs> and like, how does that peek through? So yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. All right. Thank you for indulging my block parking lot hatred. <laughs> well, that is our show for today. Ingu, thank you so much for joining us. Where can people find you on the internet? Um, I am on Twitter at Ingu Kang, I-N-K-O-O-K-A-N-G, and my work is at The Washington Post. Nope. You can find me at Anita Sarkeesian on Twitter, Instagram, and all the things. I'm Kat Spada. You can find me at Kat underscore EX underscore Machina on Twitter, and you can find Feminist Frequency at FemFreak on all the things. If you are a Patreon subscriber, be sure to stick around for the bonus episode with our special guest, Ingu Kang. If you like our show, please help other people find it by subscribing, rating, and commenting on your favorite podcatcher. Thanks so much for listening. Thanks. Bye. Bye.